the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, solemnly dedicate myself to revealing how the world really works. And like every week, today's show will really reveal vital information, information that you can use in your day-to-day life, information that will enhance your relationships, friends, and family, enhance your connection with faith, enhance your connection with your finances. These are permanent principles that always apply. It's about a week in, I'm recording this show, about a week in after the massacre in Las Vegas. And like you, I have been, I've been bothered intensely by the outpouring of either maudlin and meaningless statements or the Niagara-like cascade of outraged indignation and the political steps and the public policy procedures that must now be put in place, the changes to legislation that must now occur in order to make sure that this never happens again. And so I resolved that I was gonna wait for a good few days because it is very difficult to speak analytically about an event of such horror so soon after it occurred, while the images are still fresh in our mind's eye. But it's almost a week now, and although so far at the time of this recording, little additional information has emerged about the shooter's motivation, My point is that it doesn't much matter unless unless it turns out that uh, his motivation was either Islamic or uh, left wing, right? The, the, The aggressive left wing, which has virtually sanctified violence against conservatives, there is a possibility that it might turn out that uh, that is connected, but it's too early. I'm not going to speculate. It's not that important. The bottom line is that in this instance, what happened in Vegas did not stay in Vegas. The shockwaves of what happened last Sunday night raced out across the entire nation, whiplashing into every heart. Just thinking of that merciless rain of hot lead thudding into the flesh of unknowing innocence just elicits sad gasps of incredulous agony. Knowing that there was virtually no escape, 
If you take a good look at some of the pictures, you see a very high barricade in the, uh, surrounding the music festival. I guess you know maybe it was to keep people out who hadn't bought tickets, but in the final analysis, what it did do, of course, was prevent people escaping the field of fire. And that is horrific. Obviously, it was only an hour or two after the event that the predictable flood of media response let loose. The predictable flood of political response let loose. And we heard all the standard cliches. Our prayers are with the victims. Our thoughts are with them. We're shocked. It's horrible. We, we heard all of that stuff. And then what also poured out are the uh, pronouncements and proclamations of how we must prevent similar events from ever happening again. And as everybody knows, the answer is gun control. We've got to eliminate all guns, and we're the only country in the civilized world, and on and on and on and on. Okay. So what I'd like to do is give you a different approach. I'd like to provide for you an avenue that might bring some solace, an avenue from ancient Jewish wisdom. And here goes. We human beings are created with both a head and a heart. They are not the same. The head operates very differently and does not do any, play any role in the pumping of blood. And the heart, contrary to the writings and songs of poets and, uh, and romantic songwriters, I love you with my heart, uh, the, the heart is an organ that pumps blood. It has very little to do, if nothing at all, with thoughts and emotions. The heart is the heart. The head is the head. However, the head stands. It, it represents and symbolizes thinking. And the heart always symbolizes feeling and emotions. And they are two separate and distinct organs. And one of the things we should learn from this is that we need both. We need to be able to react emotionally to an event, and we also need to be able to react intellectually with our heads and our thoughts towards circumstances. I want to give you an example, if I may, because I'd really like to do everything I possibly can to make this as clear as it can be. Let's imagine I need a surgeon, right? I need some kind of a surgery, a serious surgery, and I'm going to look for a doctor to whom I can relate. And I'm going to look for a doctor who relates to me, right? Because when we sit in his office and we're going to discuss my surgery, I want him to be interested in my physical and emotional state and my background. I want him to know about my parents. I even want him to know about my children. I want him to be interested in me as a person. I want to be some, I want to have some significance in him. Uh, in other words, I want a surgeon with a heart. However, once I am on the operating table in the theater, in the operating room, operating theater is, as it's called in England, uh, I don't want that surgeon thinking of anything but the technical, medical, and anatomical problems beneath his skilled fingers. I want him to be all head. I don't want him to be distracted 
by any emotions at all. I want his technical skill to apply. So yes, I seek a doctor with both head and heart, but at different times. When I sit in his consulting room anxiously discussing my prognosis, I don't want to hear just a dispassionate clinical analysis. I need some warm sign that he cares. But during the operation, I do not want him distracted by any emotional considerations. The two are very important to me and to everybody, but not at the same time. Similarly, imagine uh, a wise young woman contemplating marriage to a man. I would recommend to her, and I do frequently, you must engage in both a head analysis and a heart analysis. You've got to think to yourself very clinically and dispassionately. Is he someone stable, upright, responsible, financially aware? And when you finish that analysis, you also have to ask yourself, are you romantically attracted to him? Do not confuse these two important but very separate analyses because confusing them could cause a tragic mistake. If this woman just completely dismisses all concerns about his moral fiber and about his financial habits because she's totally overwhelmed by his good looks, and her feelings of romantic attachment to him, she'd possibly be heading for serious trouble. If, on the other hand, she feels herself physically revolted by his repugnant hygiene, but finds herself drawn to the secure financial and moral atmosphere that he radiates, she'd also most likely be making a serious marital mistake. Those are just two examples of areas in which we try and keep head and heart completely separate. Look, it is entirely proper that our first response upon hearing about the Las Vegas massacre should be via our hearts. We are human beings. We empathize with the pain of those who lost loved ones. We empathize and feel for those whose lives were forever changed during those hours of horror. We feel the heart. We feel the fear. We feel burning hot anger towards the horrible human who caused all the suffering. We feel bewilderment at how it could have happened. We feel the fear of the imagining of what it would have been like had we been there. And if we did not experience all these feelings, if we failed to feel for those who were there, my friends, you and me, we'd be monsters. But, on the other hand, if we analyze the event and propose public policy solutions and we think this through what needs to happen while we are still in the grip of those feelings, we'd be fools. Those who do not feel empathy for people who suffered are monsters. But those who make serious decisions, give advice, suggest legislation while still in the grip of those feelings, they're fools.
And there's been an awful lot of that during the past week. An awful lot of that. I'll explain a little bit more as we move on in today's show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The website, of course, is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, it's also you need a rabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, head over there and take a look, if you would, at uh, the resources that have been. There's a download resource that is available for you. You can get hold of it right away at a very, very special price. Uh, we are only letting people know via the podcast. There is no other way uh, that people would be able to get hold of this. So please go ahead and take advantage of that now and uh, bring benefit into your family and into mine. That's RabbiDanielLappin.com. I'll be back with you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. You want to save money in a place that gives you growth, control, and certainty without stock market risk or tax risk, and you want guarantees and you want it all tax free. That's a tall order. But you can get all of that with properly designed participating whole life insurance. Most people think life insurance pays after you're dead. That's true. But you can have tax free access to use your life insurance while you're alive. Get the free book to find out how. Call 702-660-7000. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, recording this show just about a week after the massacre in Las Vegas. And uh, I have wanted to try to uh, provide for you uh, a means of thinking about it, a, uh, a lens through which you can analyze some of the vast amount of noise that has been generated in the aftermath of the event. And that was what the first segment of the show was about. Now, moving on, I don't want to uh, spend time now on the whole gun control issue. I don't want to talk about the fact that uh, uh, beyond, <laughs> talk about it beyond actually just noting that the uh, casinos are already gun-free zones. Almost without exception, every Las Vegas uh, casino has a policy that although Nevada allows concealed carry, uh, in the casino you're not allowed to bring in a weapon. I must tell you that uh, given the murder rate in cities in which guns are completely illegal, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., um, Chicago, my advice to you is if you want to stay safe, stay away from gun-free zones. That's what it would appear to be to me. To me. Uh, so, again, uh, th there's a whole debate, there's a whole discussion we can have. Uh, we can analyze why the left is so obsessively preoccupied with removing guns. We can talk about their deep-seated conviction that the instruments of force and power should be concentrated only in the hands of government. That is a firm belief of the left. They would like to see, many of them would like to see a United Nations army. They would like the United Nations, in fact, to have uh, both taxing power and uh, the ability to exert force 
because it's the government of governments. All of these things are things that you can usually predict with safety are the opinion of those who are fervently on the left, almost without exception. And so naturally, they don't miss a single opportunity. And uh, in order to help make the case that I have been making in today's show, uh, they barely conceal their emotional intensity. Uh, there are people like Piers Morgan who uh, issued an emotional rant, uh, Jimmy Kimmel, Nancy Sinatra, do you remember her? Uh, Frank Sinatra, who used to be a, a big friend of Ronald Reagan, well, his daughter, again, an insane rant. She obviously had to apologize for it afterwards because, folks, you already know this. You are regular devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. You have studied how the world really works. And you know how it is sheer folly to make any kind of decision or any kind of public pronouncement when you are in the grips of your feelings. That's not the time to propose marriage. It's not the time to try and suggest getting divorced. It's not the time to discipline children. It's not the time to do anything at all. It's certainly not the time to propose governmental legislation. When you're in the grip of your feelings, just be aware that you're in the grip of your feelings and just stay quiet. Feel, don't talk. Feel, don't act. Not only will you make a, sh a total idiot of yourself, but you may well do some severe damage as well. Once the feeling time has passed, once you're able to move past the feelings, and uh, a week for most people is, is a pretty good time, uh, anybody, anybody who made these proclamations beforehand merely declared themselves, declared the, their own foolishness. Uh, you need at least a week before you can put aside something of profound impact. You know, it was like uh, um, the uh, 11th of September, 2001. All right, that first week was not a time for making decisions. And again, the president and upper levels of government had to, I mean, they didn't have the luxury of not being able to, but, but other than that, the talking heads, all the people, who couldn't wait to open their mouths would have done well to just wait for a week. And uh, that is certainly true in the case of the Mandalay Bay Massacre. I'm hesitant to call it that. I tend to call it the Las Vegas Massacre, simply because uh, the Mandalay Bay is going to take a financial hit, obviously, from this. And uh, it doesn't seem fair to, uh, to intensify that and, and, and give this thing the name of the hotel because there'd be no recovering after that. So. I tended not to call it that. But uh, uh, once the time has come for a, a sane head analysis, right? We put aside the heart, it's now time for the head. And uh, when it's time for the head, then it's time to ask ourselves, does it make sense to apply more Second Amendment restrictions when we're not even able to effectively apply those that are already in place. When we can understand 
what the situation is in Illinois, in Chicago, in Baltimore, in Washington, D.C. So people say, oh, well, because you see in Illinois, they get guns from Indianapolis, and in Washington, D.C., they get guns from Virginia, and in Baltimore, they get guns from uh, Pennsylvania, whatever it is. But if we made gun control everywhere, then there wouldn't be any gun. And, and again, uh, I'm not going to take time in this particular show. You're all more than capable of finding, getting access to all the statistics. You can get the graphs. You can get everything that will show you uh, that there is absolutely no correlation between improved public safety from guns uh, and uh, and gun control. Uh, we can we can talk about the inability, even though yes, people can get guns in Indianapolis. But if if uh, Chicago is a gun-free zone, well, then you'd have thought that the Chicago law enforcement authorities and the judicial system would be able to make people absolutely terrified of bringing guns into Chicago. But it's a joke, in the same way that it's a joke bringing guns into Baltimore. For heaven's sake, there are Baltimore uh, city detention facilities in which the inmates get hold of guns. Right. So there, there has been zero effectiveness at that. And once again, the only people who are impacted by this overzealous cascade of legislation are law-abiding people whose lives get more restricted, more controlled, more diminished, and government gets bigger and bigger and bigger because every single new law uh, warrants and justifies new departments, new hires, new salaries, expanded government. But uh, if we are going to think about it a little bit, I'd like to offer this particular approach. Look, uh, I, 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 I don't know if you'd be shocked to know this, but um, about 100 people take their own lives in America, in the United States of America, a day. Now, it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, uh, but we are 330 million people, right? And again, a calculation I've done with you many times, you know, is that if only one hundredth of one percent of people, if one hundredth of one percent, right, if one in 10,000 people is in a state of severe mental strain, and I think you and I know from just looking around us and just being on the streets, the figures are a whole lot higher than that. But if even only one in 10,000 people were severely mentally strained, and if severely mentally people, strained people do something really rash uh, once a year, and with 330 million people, there's a lot of events going on every day, a lot. And one category of those events is about 100 people committing suicide every day. Could that be stopped? Well, we could, yeah, we could stop it. We could put nets on every tall building. We could put nets under every bridge. Uh, we could increase the number of law enforcement we could, who, and who, empower them to stop people who look as if they're going to be doing something dangerous. We can put telephones in vast numbers of emergency telephones in every public. All of these things could be done. At what sort of cost? Enormous cost to taxes. The increase in taxation necessary to pay for all of these things in order to stop 
100 suicides a day, I would say I would not warrant $1 extra tax on an American family with the intended purpose of stopping suicides. What am I? Rabbi Daniel Lappin is a heartless human being who feels nothing for other people. No, that's not true. It's that I feel a great deal for people who are living normal functioning lives, trying to manage, trying to take care of themselves and their families, trying to take care of their community institutions. I don't see them as bottomless pits of finance in order to solve every social ill that the professional do-gooders can encounter because somehow an awful lot of that money sticks to their fingers on its way to the end goal of doing good. And so, yeah, uh, there are people who are going to take their lives. And I think it is a futile uh, project to try and stop it. It is sad. And the answer lies within every family, right? Uh, the, uh, the answer lies that people without families are at vastly increased risk for suicide. People who are disconnected are at vastly increased. Yeah, I tell you again and again and again that there are enormous advantages to building a marriage, getting married, building a family and being part of that family. There are enormous advantages. One of them is your risk of suicide drops very, very, very low indeed. Right? So how about everyone else are people who made the decision to stay alone, people who made the decision not to be married, people who made the decision to be divorced, should they be penalized? No, of course they shouldn't be penalized, but neither should we assume that we can surround everyone's lives with cotton wool and protect them from all ill. We cannot. We're not God. And so um, uh, it's sad, but a hundred people a day are going to continue taking their lives. And uh, all I can say is that uh, be aware and alert to the people in your family. Be aware and alert to the people in your community, people in your church or synagogue family. Be, be on the lookout for people who are stressed, strained, uh, people who appear to be losing it. And that's going to be the best hope we've got to diminish the number of suicides. Okay, here's another one. Uh, how many people die in traffic fatalities every day? Remember that uh, 59 people died in the Las Vegas massacre. Right? It's horrible, tragic, and I'm not in any way, I mean, always got to issue that caveat. I'm not diminishing it. I'm not minimizing any one of them. But remember, we're now talking head. We've done heart. Maybe we'll come back to heart. Maybe some of us will be attending funerals. We'll be back at the heart. But right now, we're at the head. And uh, using our heads, there are a lot of people who die in America of traffic fatalities, traffic accidents. How many? Well, actually, it's also about 100 a day, well over 30,000 a year. Now, right, we're, we're talking about 59 people who died in Las Vegas. And of course, it was a murder. I'm not comparing murder and massacre to traffic accidents in that way. But remember, we're not talking feelings now. We're talking facts, dispassionate, intellectual, non-emotional, head-driven facts. And if our goal is to stop deaths, which is what we're hearing from foolish people who open their mouths too quickly, then all deaths are the same and should be stopped. And what do we do about 100 people who die in traffic accidents every day? The answer is very simple. 
a nationwide, rigidly enforced traffic speed limit of eight miles an hour. Nobody, nowhere, at no time is allowed to drive a motor vehicle faster than eight miles an hour. That will virtually eliminate all traffic accident fatalities. So obviously, addressing myself now to the foolish people who've said foolish things in the last week, you're obviously not serious about saving lives because 100 people a day is a much more worthy goal than trying to stop the next mass murderer, right? And when might that happen? Who knows? 50 people is a huge number of people, 59 people, a huge number of people, right? But the next mass murder in America, and it may well happen. Yes, we're 330 million people. It may happen in, in a year or two years or five years from now, but tomorrow, 100 people are dying. And the day after that, another 100 in traffic accidents. So why are you not agitating to eliminate that? The answer is very simple, and that is you do not feel that it is worth the goal of eliminating all deaths at any cost. You are willing to suffer 100 traffic deaths a day, over 30,000 a year. You're willing because you do not want to tamper with the freedom of Americans to drive their motor vehicles at current speed limits. That's what it is. And so now that, now that we've established that you do agree that we're not going to try and eliminate all deaths by eliminating all freedoms, I would submit to you that there's not a lot of difference between Second Amendment rights and driving a motor vehicle at 55 miles an hour. The only difference is that one is actually a constitutional right. We do not allow you to tamper with that. I'm sorry. If you want to legislate an eight mile an hour national speed limit, I would oppose it, but I couldn't oppose it on constitutional grounds, I don't think. But your attempt to limit my freedoms, limit my rights on the grounds of eliminating 50 deaths or 59 deaths or 60 deaths when you ignore 100 suicides a day and you ignore 100 traffic accidents a day, it just shows that guns in your mind occupy a special place. Your goal is not really to eliminate all deaths, not at all. Your goal is to eliminate constitutional freedoms in favor of expanded government power in these United States of America. Head over to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and at the store you will find a, a huge number of resources that we have created uh, to improve your life in, in areas that really matter. You'll also find right now that there are products available for instant download at a very special price available here to listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. So head over to RabbiDanielLappin.com and make us both happy. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, moving on into other areas now, 
Uh, I want to tell you about a startup a, a while ago. This is a company that began, uh, it created an app, and um, it's, it's a very clever idea, and it's the sort of thing that you could have thought about or I could have thought about, but we didn't. Somebody else thought about it and turned it into a successful company. Um, it was called, it is called Task Rabbit, right? T-A-S-K. Um, if I was born elsewhere, I would probably say Task Rabbit, but I say Task Rabbit. It doesn't matter. Uh, Task Rabbit is a, uh, a company that matches up people who need odd jobs done with other people who, for a price, are, are willing to do those jobs. So when you know you need. Uh, uh, something fixed in your house you need sometimes you just need somebody to help you to carry a load of stuff right you want to carry a whole lot of heavy stuff from your uh, your uh, SUV into your house you may want to move furniture around whatever it is you go online you uh, you you list the, the task and the date and the location where you are and the software puts you together with people who are willing to come and do that work and, and you can read about how, how well they've done in the past and they are rated. It's the usual uh, web model that we're all very familiar with today. But I think you'll agree, brilliant idea. I wish I would have thought of it. It's a terrific concept. And needless to say, huge numbers of people are, being, are helped to make a living by doing odd jobs, you know, and some of them are more skilled than others, so people apply to do the jobs that they're skilled for and that they have experience at. And it also helps huge numbers of people who are not always able to do these things for themselves. Anyways, uh, that's one piece of information. Now, put that on the side for just a moment, and I will tell you about another company that you're obviously familiar with. This is a company that's uh, about 50 years old, bit more than 50 years old, uh, it's a Swedish company called IKEA, and they came up with this idea of selling furniture packed flat, and um, and that was reasonably easy for, um, for for purchasers and customers to assemble themselves. And for many years, that's exactly what's been happening, right? People have bought IKEA furniture and they've assembled it themselves, and everything's been going normally, but. It does seem as if there is a change in the, uh, in the ability of Americans. And I'm, I'm wondering if a piece of financial information I'm about to share with you actually points a baleful finger at a deterioration in something that we always considered to be an American value, self-reliance. I can take care of it myself. I can do it. And, um, and, you know, you'll, you'll remember, and I was certainly part of this, uh, you know, repairing your car yourself, right? It was a matter of pride for me, and especially my teenage years and my early adulthood years. Uh, I, it was rare for me to take my car in for service, unless it was a major thing, you know, a, uh, a, uh, 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 an overhaul of the transmission or something like that. And... Uh, you know, uh, fixing, I mean, we all, we all did this, right? But IKEA has noticed in recent years a declining ability on the part of Americans to assemble their furniture. And again, if you're IKEA and you've got hundreds of stores all around the country, uh, you re it's like having a giant polling organization. You can really measure certain things and draw 
compelling and valid conclusions. And if you notice uh, that reports of customers incapable of assembling a piece of furniture are on the increase, then you, you look and see if this is happening in all of your stores and you're able to draw conclusions. Well, turns out that uh, uh, IKEA began noticing, a number of years ago already, began noticing this decline. So the first thing they did was they began publishing on YouTube videos on how to assemble their popular pieces of furniture. And uh, that's that, you know, that helped for a while. But it didn't solve the problem. The problems continued growing. And so guess what IKEA has done? They bought TaskRabbit. Isn't that something? The, the company IKEA purchased the company TaskRabbit. Now, TaskRabbit also already has an existing relationship with Amazon. Because if you buy, uh, shall we say, uh, a television set that needs to be mounted on the wall, and again, you've got to know what you're doing, right? You've got to install the mounting bracket, you've got to attach it, make sure it's attached not just to the wall board, but also to the studs behind. You've got to know how to do all that. If you don't know how to do that and you want to buy a TV, Amazon will put you in touch with TaskRabbit, and you find somebody through TaskRabbit who will come and install it for you. And IKEA has bought TaskRabbit. I see that as, uh, as, as a very clear indicator that we Americans as a nation are uh, losing our do-it-yourself ability. Now, there may be other conclusions. Uh, it is possible that I am seeing a correlation and drawing a conclusion from that correlation. The correlation is um, more and more people paying someone through TaskRabbit to assemble their IKEA furniture than they used to. So that would suggest to me that perhaps it means that uh, Americans are less adept at do-it-yourself work, being able to... You know, one of the things I'd love to find out is whether there is a change in the number of American households that have a fully equipped toolbox. Right? I, I must say that I, I, there was a time I don't think I knew people. Well, I suppose I did. But for the most part, most of my friends you know, have tools. I don't know if that's still the case. I have no information on this, but I, I would be very interested to know if the number of people who have a fully equipped toolbox uh, has changed or remained steady as a portion of the population, is it possible that it's gone down? Yeah, it is possible that it's gone down. Uh, are there other conclusions that you can draw? Yeah, I suppose you could say that, well, people are just too busy these days, they haven't got the time, they'd rather pay somebody else than take the time to do it themselves. It's, that, that is a possible other conclusion. I don't have enough data to, to be absolutely solid on this. But uh, when, as soon as I saw the financial pages and I saw that, um, that IKEA was purchasing TaskRabbit, the first thought that occurred to me is, is it possible that uh, the proportion of our population that is fully capable of cutting open an IKEA box, getting some tools out and assembling a piece of furniture, could it be that the, there are fewer and fewer of us able and willing to do that? And that is why IKEA bought TaskRabbit. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. You can always go on to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, write to me. Tell me your experiences, and I'll incorporate them into a future show, to be sure. 
I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. If you go to the store on our website, you will find that uh, there are download resources that you can download right now as soon as the show's over. Uh, you can have them in your hands at a discount price available just to listeners on the podcast. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com, and that's also a place where you can contact me with an email and let me know what your experiences are in terms of do-it-yourself. Uh, do you feel that there has been a decline in the percentage of Americans willing to take care of problems themselves, or is, uh, is everything still healthy in the heartland of the United States of America. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you for being part of the show. And uh, as I like to do uh, every week is acknowledge my appreciation and gratitude uh, to those of you who helped make the show success, helped to spread its word, and uh, helped gain access to the show for many, many, many more new listeners. Thanks very much indeed. And I'm looking at uh, a, a story which contains within it a phrase that I think I can say, and I'm sure you can say, in fact, almost everybody we know could say this. A woman said, it's heartbreaking to me that my job doesn't pay what I feel it should. <laughs> do you feel underpaid? Well, of course you do. I do. Everybody, most people do. Excepting there are some people, obviously, there are a few rare people who can't understand their good fortune and, and believe, perhaps rightly, that they're vastly overpaid. But for the most part, I think most people are, are happy to uh, to say, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm not being paid what I feel I should be being paid. Well, anyway, what's the story? Uh, this is a... Um, a, a series of interviews of adjunct professors and instructors at colleges around the United States. Okay, so uh, the most privileged people in America, among the most privileged people in America, are tenured university professors. Uh, look, there's nothing to say. These people, they, they've carved out for themselves an amazing lifestyle. Um, Government-guaranteed salary, extremely high pay, very, very little work. Um, there's nothing they can do that'll get them fired. Look, being a tenured university professor is just plain fun. That's all there is to it. Um, offer me a tenured university professorship. I'll let you know now. The answer is yes. Okay? So don't, don't even hesitate. If you've been wondering whether it's worthwhile offering me a tenured university professorship, go right ahead. Try me. Okay? This is just great. But um, then you've got adjunct instructors, and they're sort of on the, the road to becoming tenured university professors. Some make it, some don't. 
And most universities and colleges do employ many, many instructors who are not full-time teachers, they're not full-time professors, they're not going to ever be uh, full-time, they're not going to be on tenure track, and uh, they come in and teach. Many of them teach at a number of different colleges. Um, look, uh, they do it. That's the lifestyle they chose. And again, it's, you know, it's, it's a fair lifestyle. I've got to tell you, teaching is, is a nice job, right? And there's a reason that there are huge numbers of Americans trying to get jobs teaching in America's schools, right? There's a lot of people who want that job. It pays well. It's got good benefit. Does it pay as much? Like, do you think American teachers are paid what they think they should be paid? Of course not. That's why teachers' unions are constantly pushing for higher pay. This will solve America's educational problems. A 10% pay rise across the board for America's teachers. That'll do it. Yeah, right. But this goes on all the time because teachers believe they should be paid more. I get that. Of course they feel that. And because they are union represented and because they are paid out of the public purse of tax money, uh, there's nobody there to look after the taxpayer. Nobody ever says, nope, you know what? If you don't like it, quit and we'll hire other teachers. There's no shortage of people wanting to teach. Anyways, uh, the, um, this, the, this interviewer finds one woman, um, middle-aged woman, lives in a large U.S. city, asked to remain anonymous to protect her, edu her reputation as an adjunct instructor, uh, meaning she's not a full-time faculty member at any one college, but uh, she teaches individual courses at different colleges. Fine, that's, that's what she chose. And now here's what she says, quoting her, I feel committed to being the person who's there to help millennials, the next generation, go on to become critical thinkers. And I'm really, really good at it. And I really, really like it. It's heartbreaking to me that it doesn't pay what I feel it should. What I feel it should pay. Folks, as uh, I was talking about in the first segment of uh, today's show, there are two parts in how we analyze circumstances in our lives, our heads and our hearts. And the, it's really important that the two are kept separate. Somebody says, I don't feel I'm being paid as much as I should. Okay, that's a feeling. And I have a word of advice for you. I know you didn't ask me for your advice, but maybe since you're listening to the show, you might be open to it. Please don't go to your employer and say, I feel I should be making more. Because he's not really interested in your feelings. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. But if you want to ask for a raise, go right ahead. I think you should. But you need to build together an intellectual case, a case built on the head, not the heart. That'll explain why you should get a raise. But here's a woman who's actually teaching at a university. It's shameful. I would never pay tuition so that my child could be taught by this woman. I don't know what she teaches. I don't know how well she teaches. I don't know anything. All I know is that nobody who says, I don't really feel I'm being paid what I should be being paid, and she thinks that's, that feeling is relevant to share with anyone except your spouse, she doesn't deserve to be teaching my child, I'll tell you that. And so uh, uh, it's, it's, I think, worth bearing in mind that to whatever extent the market is not 
distorted by governmental involvement. And by the way, the educational market is severely distorted uh, by governmental involvement. That's both at the uh, K through 12, what I call GICs, the government indoctrination camp system, uh, and also at the college university level, tremendously distorted by governmental involvement, obviously. Uh, the, the rise in tuition over the last 50 years has been criminal. And uh, where is it all going? Well, it's not hard to figure that out. Uh, the university campus has become sheltered employment for the incompetent. It's just a great place to get a job. Um, it's for all the reasons I've spoken of before. Very little work. It's, it's, like, it's like many government bureaucratic positions, whether you're an administrator or whether you are a teacher, working on the university campus, for the most part, lots of fun. Exceptions, yeah, of course there are exceptions, particularly in the science, technology, engineering, mathematics, biology, chemistry, in all the hard information areas. But um, people who've got jobs teaching gender studies, racial studies, <laughs> comparative literature, comparative art, comparative religion. Uh, good luck to you folks. Uh, you are the object of my envy. You've got a great life. And uh, I bet you don't feel you're being paid what you feel you should, I bet. And that's right. I, that's exactly how you feel. Totally understandable and completely irrelevant. Um, finances are very important. And the best thing about it is that you always know where you stand, provided the market hasn't been distorted by the government. And the best place to find that out is what I was talking about in the last segment. Even if you don't have anything needing done right now, go on TaskRabbit on their website and uh, explore certain types of jobs. And you will see a wide range in the per hourly rate of the people bidding to do your work. Why would that be? And the answer is each person has figured out what they're worth. And what's that based on? It's based on how many previous jobs they've done, it's based on customer satisfaction with them. Everybody gets raided. And you will notice that those people who've had lots of experience doing the work you want are able to charge more per hour. Those who get higher positive ratings get to charge more per hour. You'll see those who are starting off on TaskRabbit. They have no record to show yet. Their rates will be very low. Now, do you think they walk around saying, oh, it's not fair, I'm not being paid as much as this guy on TaskRabbit, and we're both on TaskRabbit, and we're both exactly the same, and we're equivalent to one another? No, because they understand how the world really works. It's as simple as that. And one of the ways of how the world really works is that uh, time marches on, and inevitably we've reached the end of as much as we can go on today's show. And so uh, visit the website, please, rabbidaniellappin.com, and take a look at uh, the resource we've got available for you there on a special price exclusively uh, for listeners of this show. Uh, you will find that at rabbidaniellappin.com. You'll be able to read about it, see if that's something that will benefit you in your life, and uh, I suspect it probably will. You can download that right as soon as we're done with the end of this show. So thanks for being part of the show. Appreciate you listening. Thanks for writing as well. Uh, go on the website, join in, and uh, let's hear from you at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, that takes us as far as we can go for this week. So until we're together next week on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, this is your rabbi wishing you a week of good health 
and prosperity. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.